What do you think perimenopause and menopause are all about? Hot flashes? But think again. This week on the podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Alicia Jackson. We talk about why menopause is so much more than just symptoms, and it's about your long-term health, your, your brain, your bone, and your cardiometabolic health. We talk about why it starts in our late 30s and not when we're 50, and we go deep into why perimenopause and menopause are really all about fatigue, sleeplessness, anxiety, and depression, and of course, what we can do about it. Join me in this inspiring conversation. Hey everyone, it's Clarissa here from the Thriving Through Menopause podcast. You know, as I talk to women around the world, I know that more than ever, we're looking for holistic ways to manage our menopause and to feel empowered that we're in control of our own health and healing during this vital life transition. I sit down each week with amazing guests to talk about ideas, strategies, approaches, and opportunities to help us thrive through menopause. Episodes drop every Tuesday, so I hope that you'll join us. And I have a little request for you. If you find value from the stories, lessons, and wisdom that we share, I'd like you to support this podcast. One way you can do that is to hop on to wherever you listen to podcasts, like and subscribe, share it so that others can hear the messages too. You might want to buy me a coffee to help me keep this podcast up and running. And I'd love you to subscribe to my newsletter, Heart of Menopause, over on Substack. Don't forget, episodes drop every Tuesday, and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart for being part of this community, listening to this podcast, and I hope that you enjoy the new content that's coming up this new season. Welcome to this week's episode of Thriving Through Menopause, and we're going to dive deep this week into some real hard data, some real numbers about what is really going on with women, their symptoms, menopause at work, and the many different factors that make up the kind of menopause that you might have depending on your race, your ethnicity, and maybe even the age in which you start menopause, but we shall find out. And I am absolutely delighted to be joined by Dr. Alicia Jackson. She is the CEO and founder of a company called Evernow, which is a digital care company based, well, globally, obviously it's digital, but primarily in the US. And she has really been leading the charge and building up, I think, a tremendous amount of information around menopause. So welcome, Alicia, to Thriving Through Menopause. Thank you so much, Clarissa. And that was a very, very kind uh, introduction, and I will hope to live up to it. <laughs> I'm sure you will. I mean, you founded Evernow a while ago. When did you found Evernow and why did you actually start this so we founded the company uh, in very early 2019, um, just a couple of us at the time. And um, frankly, I had never intended or thought that I would be founding a menopause company. Uh, I'm traditionally trained as a, as a PhD scientist and spent most of my career, you know, really working on the hardest problems I could find, investing in new technology and in, in early stage companies. And um, 
you know, that's what really brought me first to women's health with my first company. Um, and then I, I actually thought I was going to start a company in fertility. Um, but as I went on that journey and fertility takes you to infertility and then takes you to menopause. And the minute I saw menopause, um, my head just exploded. I, it's the impact on women's bodies is just astounding, both the near-term symptoms and the long-term health consequences. And yet no one's talking about it. No one ever brings it up with women. Um, most doctors get very little training in it. And I couldn't believe that something so important to women's health that was tied to their longevity had been so under-researched, under-invested in, and, and underserved. Um, and so at that moment, I just said, you know, game over. I don't have a choice. I have to start a company here because it's, it's not okay that women can't get access to care. And so I said, I'm going to form a company and it's going to do two things. Number one, ensure that every woman, no matter where she is, can get access to world-class care and treatments for perimenopause and menopause so that she can protect her health. And then number two, we're going to use every ounce of data that we collect to make sure that we're actually driving forward new research, new treatments, new care, so that we don't have to ever turn away a woman when she's going through perimenopause or menopause and say, well, just sorry, there's not enough research here. Uh, and that is a thing that I hear so much. Yeah, we think or we've observed. And that's not good enough in the year 2023 that we are still relying on observation and at times treating women as an extrapolation of male data because we're not small men the last time I looked anyway. <laughs> so. No. And um, it's really important to understand, too, women weren't even included in clinical trials or not required to be included in clinical trials in the United States until 1994. So all of that research on treatments in disease doesn't even necessarily apply to women's bodies. And that is just, as you said, unacceptable, especially today. It, it definitely is. I mean, we're, we are expecting that women will live till average age 84 plus you know in many although obviously there's in, there's disparities in that uh, longevity number uh, but um we're still expecting to live 30 years roughly post the the end of our menstruation and yet we don't have the data to say what happens here and you know what the implications are in real sizable numbers Yes. And we also know that it's, it's that stage of life when most of the diseases of aging occur. Women are incredibly healthy prior to menopause, especially compared to men. But that completely shifts post-menopause. Um, and in some cases, especially with cardiovascular disease, especially with uh, neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, women can actually outpace men in terms of the risks that they have. Yeah, I think women are outpacing men in the in well, for what statistics we have, they definitely are, and and also anti-inflammatory type diseases yeah. like arthritis yeah. and rheumatism. They predominantly affect women, of course, osteoporosis in this as well. I mean, yes, most cases, I think, it, is it not about sixty-five, seventy percent of all these cases are female? You are correct. Yeah. Shock, which is shocking. So then we don't know what to we don't know what to do about it. <laughs> exactly. Well, clearly something is happening, and 
And this, I, I mean, again, this is why I started this company, because it was like, I think we have a really important opportunity to really drive women's longevity if we can figure this out. Yeah. And the quality of women's life, because yes. it's not just the age, it's the fact that so many of us can't be mobile, can't exercise, can't do the things we want to do yes. and, are, and are just really living half a life like that. If you're in yeah. pain all the time, I mean, that's not, and, a, a, that's not a life. No, and and it's not just physical. It's also the um, cognitive effects, the mental yeah. health effects, yeah. and we'll we'll get to this later. But in the in the workforce study that we did, where we looked at over two thousand women, sixty percent of women between the ages of roughly forty five and sixty five are planning to leave, quit, retire, not take that promotion in their career because of menopause. That's ridiculous. Yes. But we'll come back to we'll come back to that one. Yeah. But I want to start with the really big survey that I saw the results from, and my listeners will know that I was a former head of insights. I love data. I love consumer data that's got big proper numbers behind it. So, Alicia, you conducted this survey a few years ago. Tell us a little bit more about it, and and let's dive into some of the big learnings that have come that were a bit of an aha, I think. Yeah. So um, to date, we have what we believe is the largest data set on women in perimenopause and menopause. And we've looked at over, nearly over at this point, I think over 175,000 women, um, which, is, which is quite a comprehensive data set. And that's important because there's a lot of individual variation between women. And so you need something that large in order to dig out patterns and insights. Um, we looked at multiple things in the data set, not only what are the most severe symptoms, um, but also what are the most severe symptoms during perimenopause, during menopause, um, what do outcomes look like in terms of, um, you know, and not just in terms of hot flashes and night sweats, in terms of how fast can we resolve those, but also all the other symptoms that are occurring, um, whether it's everything from vaginal dryness, extremely common, to um, anxiety and depression, all the way to joint pain. And we looked at how these symptoms manifest very differently between many women who are in perimenopause and those women who are in menopause. And it's quite different. And even, even looking further out, like post-60, when you might be more like 10 years post-menopause, and those symptoms look different. And that's important for both women to know so that they can recognize the symptoms they might be having. Um, because many of these you may never tie. You may never tie to perimenopause yeah. or menopause. And it's also and very, very important for doctors so that they know that when a woman is bringing up a symptom, that they understand what the physiological basis of that symptom is and the impact that it's having on her health. Absolutely. And so that is really comprehensive. I mean, just think, because we usually just go, it's symptoms okay. and these kind of like, but the, the way in which they're manifesting and what becomes more important over time or what is more yeah. highlighted is yeah. really important from a clinical protocol. But also women need to know, as you said, women do absolutely need to know that this is, this is part of what's going on with me. Ah, that's my menopause. Or if I'm having this these can still be the lingering effects. If you're like me, I'm in my 60s. Um, that can still be something that is still related. 
yes. to the shift um, uh, in in the hormone status. And I think we're not talking personally enough about the post-menopause phase. I mean, that's sort of like, it's done now, off you go, you're fine. And that's not necessarily the case. Yes. And and even starting to understand that for certain symptoms like hot flashes, if your hot flashes are very severe, that actually turns out to put you at increased risk of a cardiac event. It is. Um, so those symptoms are symptoms of something deeper that's going on in your health. And so they're a really important kind of marker and guide to what else you should be doing in your health. Exactly. And I don't think that is something that is discussed at all. No. No, no, very rarely. Um, yeah. Many women just say, oh, it's just part of menopause. They might be told, oh, that's completely normal. You'll get through it. Don't worry about it. You absolutely maybe should worry about it. Or you should be taking some action yes, <laughs> about please. it. Better part. Better yeah. part. I, I mean, I wonder whether um, you can just share with what came out as some of the most common and most severe mm-hmm. symptoms. Because if I've read correctly, a lot of times when I'm out reading here, women can pretty much only name three symptoms. But that isn't what's coming out at the, at the top of the, of the survey and coming out as yeah. most severe. Yeah. I'm so glad you're bringing this up uh, because I think most women will be very shocked to hear that for both the most common symptoms and for the most severe symptoms, hot flashes was not listed. Um, and that's all we hear about. So let's oh, yeah. let's first talk about most common. And what common means is that they were po- reported, whether they were mild or severe, they were reported. Um, and I don't think it will come to any surprise of anyone that number one was weight changes. Oh. Um, and and this is just almost universal across any woman going through perimenopause and menopause. And the underlying thing that's happening, why this feels so hard for everyone is because when you go into perimenopause and especially menopause, um, what we know now is that that drop in estrogen leads to insulin dysregulation. And when you have insulin dysregulation, um, the way that you process sugar and that your body stores fat changes. And so that's why you, you tend to gain that abdominal fat and... It turns out we now have evidence that women gain weight at twice the rate at any other stage of life during perimenopause and menopause. And no, exercising more and eating less is unlikely to help that much. No. Um, and if it's the wrong one telling you that, uh, you can try it. It may work. It, it can, it will be helpful. But really, you're just combating a really deep physiological change that's happening. Yeah. And, and therefore, we're storing visceral fat rather yeah. than just cutaneous fat, which we might have yeah. had when we were younger. And that's yeah. the one that's bad for your organs. <laughs> exactly right. You know, weight gain around hips and thighs, that's actually not bad for you. It's actually a very healthy form of fat. Weight gain around, around the tummy is not nearly as healthy. Um, let me talk about a couple other symptoms that we yes. saw. Um, again, no surprise to anyone who's going through this sleep disruption, um, really hard to fall asleep, waking up in the middle of the night and can't fall back asleep. Um, really common. Um, that leads us to our top third symptom of fatigue. Um, and this is obviously not helped by the fact that you're not able to sleep well. Um, but we also know that that drop of estrogen in the brain actually, um, often causes women to move less. Um, you literally yeah. don't feel like you have as much energy as you used to yeah. have. Um, and then the fourth one is brain fog. 
Yeah. Um, and this can manifest in lots of different ways. It, it's kind of like a, an inability to focus. Maybe you're forgetting words. Um, again, because we have that, the, all those estrogen changes happening in the brain during perimenopause and menopause. Yeah. Um, and so these are the most common symptoms, but often not the ones that you're taught to look for. No. So, I mean, weight gain, yes. Um, but it's interesting because if I, you ask women, what's the thing that's bugging you? They'll say, sleep, sleep. I can't sleep. I don't know what's no. happening here. So no. for me, I'm not surprised, but I think it's a big difference to the public debate and also where we are with respect to what is still cited in guidelines around the world. Yes. So yes. there is a real disparity between what women are actually experiencing, what is top, what is the most severe, and the fact that the guidelines, whether they're North American, British, Australian, or here in Sweden, we don't have proper guide, we don't have a medical society where I live, but we do have guidelines. And yes. everything is focused on hot flashes. So women turn up and they don't have hot flashes. I didn't have hot flashes. I had some mm -hmm. minor heat things and my back end last year was nothing but boy did i have weight gain and sleep disruption <laughs> yeah. yeah 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 so yeah. so that is very important what has uncovered from your from your survey and and just to to add to your comment um you know sleep disruption and fatigue are also some of the most severe symptoms women have mm -hmm. um and then the other two are weight changes once again yeah. And then a, a new one, which we haven't spoken about, which is, which is um, painful sex, um, painful penetrative sex. Um, and um, often this is, this is, again, due to the drop of estrogen and your vaginal tissues really become quite dry and thin and irritated. Um, and, and it can manifest in many different ways, not just, not just in sex, but um, it can happen during urination. It can be painful just walking around. Um, and it, it really is quite a serious issue, but, but many women will not bring it up with their physician, even though um, often in many ways it is the easiest thing to treat. Um, yep. Vaginal estradiol can be taken by basically 100% of women safely at any age. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, when you think about those things, all of these are treatable. All of these are really life quality debilitating. Yes. Unless you have very severe hot flashes, night sweats, and there are women obviously who have Absolutely. that, um, you could live with a hot. Most people can live. A large percentage of women can live with a hot flash. It's irritating. It's vile. But some of these things have longer term health implications and real implications for the quality of our life. Very much so. Yeah. How did that look when we looked at perimenopause versus menopause versus post? What how did these things shift and change across the different stages of this life transition? Yes. So, so during perimenopause, and this is the many, what can be many years before you're in menopause. Um, what's actually happening in perimenopause is that kind of the conversation between your brain and your ovaries is, is getting scrambled. And so it's not just a smooth drop in estrogen. You can actually have very high spikes of estrogen and then very low drops in estrogen. And that really imp impacts all the cognitive things that are happening in the brain, from mental health to fatigue to sleep um, to anxiety and depression. 
as part of mental health. And so we see a lot of the brain issues start manifesting during perimenopause. Um, some women have really bad PMS and mood swings right before their period, which who knows when that might be showing up during perimenopause. Yeah. Um, and so their, their symptoms are actually look very different than the other stages of, of menopause. Um, as you move into menopause, that's when we really see hot flashes and night sweats become women's number one symptom by far. Um, again, they're still having the sleep disruption that doesn't seem to go away. Um, joint pain really common. It hurts to yeah. move. That's what yeah. we hear a lot. It just hurts to move. A lot of women who like to be very active, suddenly it does not feel good in their body. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's still some brain fog there as well. Yeah. Yeah. Then, so, yeah. so that yeah. shift, that shift as we're really seeing um, the decline of the estrogen and the estrogen changing its form from, yes. from estradiol to estrogen. Yes. Yes. We're really seeing that shift and that's what's causing a lot of these joint pains particularly. Yes, exactly right. And again, all of these are very treatable, very, very treatable. Um, After about 10 years post-menopause, so 10 years after your last period, um, the hot flashes and night sweats tend to calm down. We still see them, but they're just not as frequent for for most women. Um, But that's really when we see things like painful sex, urinary issues, vaginal dryness and this is because you've now gone almost a whole decade without estrogen exposure to the pelvic area Um, and that has real consequences and it's important to have it addressed because some of these changes to the tissue are very hard to reverse and so you really want to get ahead of it Um, and then you might just have to be like something you do like brushing your teeth every day it might just be you have to use vaginal estrogen every day Um, and there's no risk associated with that there's only benefit yeah. Um, yeah. And, and then we continue to see brain fog. And, and this, I think, is really um, I don't want to diminish it because I think it's really important that we continue to see the cognitive effects of menopause all the way from perimenopause through postmenopause. And so I think so much more research has to be done on what is menopause doing to women's brain and their cognitive health over time and what we can do about it. Yeah. And I think we've only just scratched the surface of that side of it um but that is playing really into our workplace isn't it yes it is that might bring me to that new newer survey should i say that you have on the 2000 or so women Um, what is happening to women in the workplace from your learnings so um i didn't know this but 45% 45% of the female workforce is over the age of 45. That means 45% of the female workforce is in perimenopause or menopause. Um, mm-hmm. Probably more, more women in that workforce than are, that are pregnant, trying to get pregnant, postpartum. Oh, it is all about menopause. Um, and as I said earlier, you know, really stunned to see the 60% of women were considering to, to really taking a step back. And what's driving this? Same things we talked about before, Uh, mental health challenges, anxiety and depression, Um, feeling like they can't focus, Um, not feeling that same drive that they had to perform. Um, Really the sleeplessness, um, you know, personal story. My own mother almost left work because she couldn't she couldn't sleep at night. Um, You know, thankfully, she she actually got on hormonal therapy which enabled her to get the rest that she needed. Um, 
but it's really this multitude of mostly cognitive symptoms, which are leading women to say, you know what, I can't do this anymore. And the real tragedy here is that very few of these women will ever bring it up at work because of fear of ageism, because nobody wants menopause to be an excuse. And so many employers have no idea that this is happening. It, and, yeah. and, you know, I, I'm calling it silent quitting because yeah. no one's ever going to tell your employer why you're leaving. Um, no. And I, it's very much unspoken today. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I th- or I think women struggle on mm-hmm. and then receive performance reviews that they do not wish to have. Yeah. Um, some women don't have the choice. They can't quit. Correct. Uh, and so if we look across different income groups and different situations, there are lots of uh, idea, lots of women who really can't leave. I mean, they have to keep working no. and struggling through this, maybe until they're coming around 60. But if the brain fog is persisting, then it will persist. Then it will persist. And it's, it's not good for women. And to be honest, it's not good for business. Um, because often businesses have really invested in this female talent and leadership, and it's very hard to replace, very expensive to replace as well. Well, yes, I know if women leave, I think we have to be fair to say, Alicia, that we are not just losing the knowledge they bring, but women have a tendency to mentor other younger Mm. women. They do a lot of the unspoken, unpromotable stuff in the office to our detriment I think we should push back but that's my own personal opinion I think we need to stand up and say sorry I know can do at times but I also think we lose something about cohesion that women bring they bring relationship and cohesion to groups at work that simply is sorry guys you don't do that you know in the same way men don't tend to they're more competitive and combative at work by nature. A lot of them has a different leadership style and female leadership brings a tremendous amount of female team working. So to lose that talent is um, very detrimental to business. I absolutely agree. Absolutely. And I just think about my own career. I've always been looking up, right? Like, who is that female leader, right? And you're, you're absolutely right. I've, I've really benefited from so many female leaders who have, you know, helped me take that next step up. And if we're really losing a, a vast majority of these female leaders, you know, who does the younger generation look to? Yeah. Uh, and that what kind of culture does, does a business want to have if it's losing Older women, it's not sending a great signal, as you said, who do you look up to? But just the the sort of type of nature and how business runs needs women. It needs that balance. Yes, um, it does. In the workplace. So I think, you know, it is imperative that businesses embrace um, an understanding of menopause and start to put um, proper support for women in place. Yes. Yes. And and we should definitely say proper support means uh, more than just time off for menopause. Yeah. Um, that, that's a bandaid. Um, it's not actually addressing root cause. Um, and so it really does need to be quite comprehensive. Um, and business has been so great at really leaning into pregnancy care and postpartum care and, you know, mental health care. 
but it it really has not done much yet today in really supporting women at this stage of life for their health. No. And I think that conversation has started in the UK, but people going around and talking about menopause is not quite the same as businesses embracing it. Having a, pol- a policy can live in your desk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it can live in HR's filing cabinet. Very true. But, but actually embracing what it means because unlike pregnancy, this goes on from a decade or so. And I think maybe that isn't quite what business has worked through yet. Um, what the implications of their change of culture actually is. Hmm. Yeah. So have you been actually sharing this workplace learning more widely in the US? We have. So we 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 put it out. Um, we've we've also started engaging employers and bringing bringing really menopause benefits to the workforce to support their female workforce. Um, and then, um, just speaking about it even more broadly, wherever we can, because obviously first step is awareness, both for female employees and for businesses, and then actually engagement and putting the tools in place. Yeah. And your president's wife has now stepped into the, uh, scene. I mean, is ever now engaged in that too, and the data that you've gathered coming into play in this U.S., Yes. yes. So we've we've had some good conversations. Obviously, we're quite we're quite passionate about this space and have been sharing our work um, with the White House and and all the various agencies that are engaged in this. And you know, I think I think I am so excited to see a light really shown on um, women's health broadly after the age of forty, because they're again. Um, it's going to take everybody really investing in this space. And the government really has a very large hand to play here in terms of they are the largest funder of research in the U.S., but so little research has been focused on this stage of life. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge step forward. And I think that's a very um, prominent comparative, even though the U.K. has been talking and it's been talked about in Parliament. I think there's a big difference for your president's wife the first lady to actually front up obviously as you said there are lots of agencies but i think that really places a spotlight on the importance of this time of life and that it needs to be taken more seriously uh than it being championed by individual mps in the uk and as for anywhere else well i don't think that's going anywhere although australia has been making some pretty good representation to yeah. Parliament. And you'd be shocked in the Nordics where I live, the conversation is zero. Really? So it's zero. We are, we are the world's most equal countries in terms of pay and all the other gender equality, but the conversation is nowhere. I'm, I am shocked about that. You should be shocked, yeah. Um, why do you think the UK is so far ahead here? I think it's been championed by uh, clinicians. Mm. And so, and I think it's been picked up by a very broad coalition of people, um, clinicians, alternative practitioners, researchers, um, business. I think it's had a very broad church, if we like to say it in those terms. Whereas it's been 
left here in Sweden and in the Nordics in the hands of clinicians, most of whom, as you said earlier, in the US don't have any training, they don't have any training at all. We're looking at no. through the lens of hot no. flashes. And therefore, the factors that you have brought up here are not coming into public debate and it's not being spoken about as being important for business. Even though, of course, you know, the figures of how many women there are at this age group is the same for any developed country. So. Exactly right. And I, I want to say, um, I'll find it, but it's some enormous economic impact. Like I want to say like 26 billion, yeah. um, something ridiculous. And so anyone who cares about economic productivity, especially as we're seeing in the U.S., fewer people enter the workforce. Um, this is this is a looming, a looming issue. Yeah. And the fact that most of us are going to work longer. And not retire at 55, like I thought I would have done. <laughs> One day, I thought, oh, I'm going to retire at 55. No. <laughs> Might have a second career, but, but uh, uh, you know, most, a lot of people are going to be there working until they are 70. Yes. That seems to be now that. And so the health of women for the next 25 years of their working life is extremely important for everybody. Yes. So beyond it, Ever now doing all this fantastic research, which is, and I know you have another publication coming out on looking yeah. at differentiations and um, in terms of race and ethnicity. Race, ethnicity, and social determinants of health. So things like access to care and income levels. Um, I'll give a little bit of a preview. So be because we have this rich data set, we, we decided to start looking at factors such as race and ethnicity, and not just for um, um, Caucasian women, Black women, and Hispanic women, but also Southeast Asian women, East Asian women, um, Indigenous and First Nations women, really, really, really a comprehensive data set. And um, was, we're really just shocked to see the differences across different populations of women. Um, black women have twice as severe vasomotor symptoms, hot flashes and night sweats. Um, and um, when you look at um, women like uh, East Asian women and Asian women, they don't tend to have as many of those vasomotor symptoms, but some of them have a lot of other stronger symptoms like weight gain, um, anxiety and depression. Um, and I don't think this has been widely publicized how different menopause can manifest in different populations of women and therefore how that might actually drive treatment protocols across different types of women. Yeah. I think some of that came out in the SWAN studies that were longitudinal, but the implications for care it still needs to be really worked through, doesn't it, Alicia? Yes, it does. And I, and I could say we've already started to put some changes in our care protocols into place because of this. Um, you know, so many, so much of medical training is, especially for menopause, lowest dose, shortest amount of time. Um, that is not working. That standard of care is not working today. And especially with the latest evidence that we have, we know that that is actually not best practice anymore. Best practice is really to match dose with symptom, symptom severity. Um, um, and other physical factors that a, a woman might be having. And then really that she can stay on hormone therapy indefinitely, 
as long as she is in good health. Um, yeah. And so so we really do need to change protocols here. And that's that's one of the reasons yeah. we're doing all this research is because we really want to move our practice forward and really get women the best care possible. Yeah. Which is which is going to be much more personalized and individualized, isn't it? Very much previously so. than previously. Yeah. I mean, when we look at those things, I mean, there are obviously a lot, as you said, social determinants. And I'm sure that when we think about women of color, indigenous women, and there's a tremendous amount of intergenerational trauma. Yes. Uh, and obviously related to all that has happened for people to come here uh, in their history alongside poverty uh, and a general struggle and other aspects in their in their communities that must be playing into this. Uh, that is one of our hypotheses. Um, you know, we know things. We know things like access to care. Um, women who have less access to care um, uh, tend to have worse symptoms. Mm-hmm. Women who are of lower income, um, again, because that often translate to, translates to lack of access to care, tend to have worse symptoms. Interestingly enough, even when we um, corrected for those factors, we still saw um, the difference in symptoms um, among yeah. different populations of women, which I think was was very interesting and means more research needs to be done here. Yeah, there will be dietary factors playing into that as well. And we very would see true. that in, in, in Asian women. I mean, yeah. they do have higher levels typically of phytoestrogens. But then if you move to America and you have an American diet, then probably the... Uh, data that has come out of Japan and China, and that's very old. I mean, I've worked Asia for as one of the core markets for 30 years. Believe you me, McDonald's and KFC have their biggest markets in China and Japan after yeah. the US. So yeah. the actual cultural diet is changing a lot, and that is playing in, I'm sure, into us not um, possibly continuing to have that conversation that says they don't have issues because they do. And I think that women who are of Asian origin also have a lot of UTIs, urine tract infections. Oh, that's interesting. That's quite common in Southeast Mm. Asia, which may not have come on your survey, but it is extremely Mm. common. And that is treated almost entirely with antibiotics today in places like Singapore and Malaysia. Oh, wow. I did not know that, but I'm going to go back and look at our data. (laughs) So that that may be there. So I think that is such a ground paper breaking piece of work that needs to come out that I, I think Alicia is fantastic that Evan has brought out because that's going to provide better care. Yes, exactly right. For you, everyone. For everyone. I think that's it because I think we have had a lot of the recommendations, a lot of where we are is, I'm going to just say that, it's a little white and middle class. <laughs> you know, sorry yeah. to all of us that are, you know, because no. we are, but there it, it, it tends to be a little bit. And some of the solutions and clinics I see that open are talking to many of these women who make up a significant amount of our, our population um, who are going to be working multiple jobs sometimes well for said. Long periods of time. And so yeah. we really need to to change that. Yes. And, and especially in the United States where um, care can be much more expensive here. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't have universal health care in the United States. And so really making sure that care is affordable yeah. 
And that even if you don't have the resources, um, um, an interesting thing about menopause is it, it's not acute. You don't just don't go to your doctor once and everything's solved. Often you, you really need an ongoing relationship. And that's very hard to do, as you said, if it's a long ways to find a physician, if your doctor is not trained, if you can't get off work to talk with them, if you can't make your copay. Um, really what we need to be focusing on is not just advancing care, but really making care very accessible at all income yeah. level. Yeah. And that, and that is, that is important. And we know that women who, um, are of lower income or migrant statuses here in Europe will more than likely, I would hypothesize are experiencing exactly the same. Mm. Um, I think a friend of mine volunteered at a food bank somewhere in the North of England. And the women said, oh, what do you work with? She said menopause. She said, oh, you need to be rich to have a menopause because there's no choice mm-hmm. for us. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so it may not be as acute in a public health care system, but it's still there. Yeah. That, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think what you're doing is, is fantastic, just raising that level of information. But Ever now, of course, is providing personalized, individualized care, is it not, as well, in terms we of are. medication? Yeah. We are. Yeah. We are. And, and, and you said something about people could have different doses. That, that's in quite sharp contrast of a higher dose conversation. It's very controversial right now, Alicia. You know, it's causing a lot of people getting very hot under the collar and taking different positions. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, I think so. I think we have had some prominent professors come out and push back against that, um, push out again, push back against testosterone as well, very strongly. So I think this it's interest it's interesting times that are are developing in this arena of hormone therapy. I'm I'm I am surprised and not surprised at the same time. Which is I, I haven't seen good evidence against going 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 to higher doses, so I'm I'm surprised by that. But I do know that it goes against much of standard medical training, yeah. and I think one of the hardest challenges we're going to have is that we have had generations, generations of medical providers who have been trained on outdated protocols, and um, it's very unlikely that they're going to change their stance. Um, largely because of medical culture. Um, and so we really need this new generation of medical providers who are trained on the latest evidence and guidelines to make that sea change. Mm. Um, and, and unfortunately, I think that's going to take a long time. It's going to take a long time. Yeah. I mean, somebody quoted 17 years to me between the data and the, and the actual implementation of it in a guideline yeah so that that is going to be i think a long long journey and i'm just look here in sweden i just roll my eyes and think well never happened in my lifetime yes quite quite frankly not i mean we're so far behind in in terms of the conversation and there's a blogger here and she collects every time women are gaslit she just does it she puts it on instagram puts it on instagram and it's deeply, it's actually quite deeply shocking that women are still being met in that kind yes. of way. Yes. But, but alongside the hormone treatment, I mean, is Evanowell's advocating lifestyle interventions as supportive measures? So, yes. So we also offer programs. So um, 
um, for everything from sleep to weight to strength, um, even some mental health as well, because we we really want to build something that's quite holistic. Um, too often, I think we just see menopause as this narrow slice of life that occurs, and it's it's there and then it's gone, um, and that that just simply isn't true. This is really about women's health care post forty, because the body you had before 40 and the body that you have after 40 are very different and require lots of different types of care than maybe what you had before. Um, and so we really see this as a new category of women's health care that we're building here, where menopause is, perimenopause and menopause are really at the base of it, but then everything that follows, whether your heart health, your brain health, your vaginal health, your bone health, are all connected to what yeah. that physiological change is. And unless you have a provider who understands that, you know, these menopausal hormone changes are at the root of it, you're not going to get kind of the comprehensive care that you need. And so um, we've been building, so, we, you know, we started really, really focused on vasomotor symptoms and hormone therapy. Um, and then we started to go into non-hormonal therapy. So there's some really great new treatments out there, especially for women um, who don't qualify for hormone therapy for whatever reason. There's a, a new drug in the U.S. known as Vioza, which yeah. has some promising data behind it. Now, it's it's non-hormonal, so that means you're not going to get some of the other benefits than you would get from a hormonal therapy, but it still helps women with hot flashes and night sweats. Yes. Um, we've moved into vaginal health. Um, we even have a little bit of work on, on hair and skin because um, hair loss turns out to be a major issue oh, yeah. during perimenopause. Yes. 60% of women are, are thinning and losing hair. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that can really impact women's sense of self and self-esteem, even if it feels very cosmetic. Yes. Um, and then we're, we're now going into metabolic health because um, I'm sure you know, Clarissa, but cardiovascular disease post-menopause is women's number one killer. It kills one in three women um, many more times than, than something like breast cancer, which I think we've, we've all been taught about, but we don't realize it's really cardiovascular disease that's likely to be the killer for you. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm very, very committed to metabolic health. There's lots of new treatments coming out. And we really want to protect women's hearts and bodies against their number one killer there. And, and I think very few women are even educated on that as well um, by, their, by the medical profession. No. And I think that is a vital thing because we, yes, you're right. I mean, yes, breast cancer can be very common, one in seven, one in eight women. Survival rates in many countries is 90% plus with the yes. right treatment. Obviously, can vary due to various disparities, but it is quite high. But, uh, and that's not to downplay it, but yes, you're right, cardiovascular disease, and I would say osteoporosis is quite closely behind uh-huh. it, if I'm right. Very, very glad you said that. I think I was talking with Avram Blooming, uh, Dr. Avram Blooming, who wrote a fantastic mm-hmm. book, Estrogen Matters. I recommend every woman read it. Um, but I was talking with him and I hadn't realized that I think it's the same number of women die each year who have hip fractures as those women who will die from breast cancer. That is, yeah. hip fractures cause just as many deaths. But, but you know, you don't see the big campaigns about it. No. no yeah. And I don't think we realize how fragile our bones can become. And when yeah. we're fatigued, we don't exercise. Women are, are not fantastic as across the board when it becomes. Mm-hmm. There are pockets of women who are exercising and doing the resistance and strength training. 
but a lot of women are not there um, and have embraced that alongside benefits of HRT if they can get it. And that is, you know, a fall is a serious thing. I'm, I'm so glad you're bringing this up. And in going back to the lifestyle things, like the most important thing a woman can do is keep moving, yeah. keep moving. And it doesn't mean you have to run five miles. It can mean um, taking a walk, walking up and down stairs, lifting weights, really, really important as you age because you just start losing muscle so quickly. Um, and so that is, that is like the number one thing to keep doing is keep moving. Number two uh, is eat healthy. <laughs> yeah. And then third, three is probably get sleep and then oh, get the I, right I, medication. That's number one. That's <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's hard to help somebody to do that because it, it's such a struggle. Even like, you know, like, uh, we all struggle with it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Alicia, it has been fantastic to have this conversation. And um, just the wealth of data and the passion and also that it's really getting out there where it needs to be to make change. And that, that is the most important thing. It's no good holding it and then not, not really making, I think, strategic change in, inside government and workplaces. So that's wonderful. So if a woman is interested and ever now wants to know how she can gain benefit from your programs how do they go about that um we're online you just go to evernow.com you can follow us on instagram um you can um sign up quite easily go through go through the health intake you'll be matched with a provider a dedicated provider to you and then you can have that conversation about you know what are your goals what are your symptoms? What are you comfortable with? What are you not comfortable with? And really do a shared care plan together on, on what your journey wants, what you want your journey to look like. That is fantastic. That's great. So we will put that in the show notes with all the links and we will be encouraging women to check this out. And, but you're only available in the US, right? We are currently only available in the United States. So we, we know that. So for the U.S. listeners, this is, this is one for you. Alicia, it has been an absolute pleasure to have you as my guest. Um, and I want to thank you for your time and everything oh. that you've shared. I'm very, very delighted to be here. Clarissa, you're, you're just awesome for doing this. And I'm so grateful to you for just shining a light on this entire topic. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as I did. I got to geek out on lots of stats and facts, but we actually need real pictures of what's going on, not just anecdotes. And I'm so eternally grateful to Dr. Alicia Jackson and her team for providing that clear picture of what's happening in women's health. Next week, I am going to be joined by Dr. Alan Valman of Valman Medical, and we're going to be talking about hair loss something that's become much more common with women and the ways that we can do that. Now, innovation in medical science could make hair loss among women a thing in the past. So join me. And if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like, subscribe and share wherever you listen to podcasts. See you next week. In the meantime, go well.